The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. So last week what we had talked about was that uh, in the Gospels, the birth of Jesus is set within a moment in time in Christian history. And that moment in time is somewhere between uh, 4 BC and, or 6 BC and 4 BC, because uh, his birth takes place during the reign of Herod the Great. So there, therefore we know at least some frame of reference around the time period. And, you know, the comforting thing is you're maybe sitting down with your, you know, I always kind of try to think about like, how would you, what would you do if you were sitting across the table from, you know, somebody who doesn't believe or is curious about the veracity of the Bible or the truth of the Bible? Um, you know, you, what you find is the more you study history, the more things just begin to line up pretty well. You know, and there's some things obviously we don't know, but we do know Herod went crazy in the last many years of his life. That's, that's both, and that coincides with just world history and also with the pattern that we see there in the Bible is the end of his life. He is uh, erratic and very emotional and who knows, maybe has dementia or something like that. And uh, anyway, he, he kind of goes crazy, obviously, but uh, this takes place at the end of his life. And, and then Luke gives us a little complicated statement that we don't necessarily know how to, how to take. But I, I think the best way to understand it is that he says that the birth of Jesus took place uh, before the census of Quirinius, during a different census that took place, you know, ten so years before that. Um, which it doesn't necessarily read that way in the ESV, but the word that's being used there can mean either one. And so you have a little note in your Bible that kind of tells you that. So again, sitting across the table from an unbeliever, that might be a way to, to be able to answer some of those questions for them. Um, the birth of Jesus, <clears throat> remember also that that Gospel uh, of Luke story it is designed to demonstrate that the birth of Jesus takes place in, in lowly circumstances. That he is um, born in a, and placed in a manger. That shepherds are the first ones that come to him because they're in the field nearby. Um, it represents Christ as a very humble uh, king. While the king of the Jews, quote-unquote, the king of the Jews, the one who is posing as the king of the Jews, who is actually a child of Esau, ironically, is in uh, some sort of lavish palace. And if you've ever seen Herod's palaces, my, are they palaces. Um, they are palaces by today's standards. They would be, uh, you know, amazing. So Herod is there, and the real king of the Jews is born in a, in a manger in a stable a cave of some kind, or some, some sort of animal barn is the point um, that he's, he's kept in. So he, he, he's, uh, he could have come any way. He, any way. And, and in fact, it seems that Mary and Joseph sought, not knowing, just went about their way to go you know, into Bethlehem to be counted during the census, sought some sort of more suitable shelter that she might be able to have this child and there wasn't anything available at the time. So where did God want this baby to be born? In, in a manger. That was the purpose. So that was the God-ordained place uh, for Christ to be placed. Then the birth of Christ 
we saw last, last time, is also seen as a sign. Um, the, the, the ruling authorities, when Jesus is born, and hearing him called king of the Jews by the Magi, Herod is, uh, to use a modern word, triggered uh, by that phrase, and seeks to kill the, the babies in the Bethlehem area that are two years and under. So he understands that, that Jesus' birth is a threat to the established order. And the Gospels don't back away from that. They don't try to explain it another way or say, no, that's not really. They're misunderstanding at all. It seems like, in fact, the New Testament is doubling down. Yeah, it is a threat to the established order. So uh, what we see pan out over the rest of the New Testament is this idea that Christians, when you follow Christ, you're actually adopting a new, a totally new identity. And that identity is in Christ. Um, And that citizenship in heaven, which is the way Paul communicates it, it's a citizenship. He doesn't say that word is really powerful, especially in a time where citizenship is a fairly, in the scope of human history, a fairly new thing where Roman citizens enjoyed a, uh, you know, privileges that the rest of the world did not have. Paul says, your citizenship is in heaven, meaning it, it supersedes any earthly citizenship you have. It's the reason that you call each other brother and sister. It's the reason that uh, we relate to each other the way that we do, and that the reason why Christians view each other as family or a church family or even a church body. Right? There's, there's, no, there's no deeper way to communicate a connectedness that transcends family than to say a body. That makes you one. And that's essentially what Christ has done. And, so, um, and that's entered in through repentance. And so as Jesus comes on the scene preaching, as we're going to see in a few weeks, uh, well, it's going to be a little bit. Um, but as we'll see in a little bit, <coughs> um, that, that's what Jesus comes preaching, is repentance. That's the way you enter in, is through humility. Um, okay, so th- tonight we're going to focus on Jesus actually being presented. The next chronological thing that happens in the story is Jesus being presented at the temple. Likely this takes place before the Magi uh, come. We're not entirely sure, but probably. With, given how early this takes place, it probably is before they come. But the point is, <clears throat> this is the next chronological thing that takes place in the story, and it happens in the Gospel of Luke. And what we see is that the parents of Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph, are presented to us in the story, and, and I don't just mean that as, I don't mean like they weren't really, they were just presented that way in the story. I mean, what Luke is underscoring is what I should say. They're presented as pious law-abiding Jews, and they're journeying from Bethlehem to just right after the baby's born to Jerusalem to fulfill the law's requirements for women who give birth and for firstborn children. So they've got a lot of requirements that they've got to fulfill in the law, and I want, I want us to look at them, and I want us to see how it's presented in Luke. So look at Luke two twenty-one to 24. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, 
the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So, <clears throat> these first few verses, Mary and Joseph are, are coming to fulfill all the law's requirements. But inside this, this brief little three verses, if you're not paying attention, or perhaps you're not super familiar with the book of Leviticus, then it all looks like just one thing that they came to do. They just came to take care of all of this in one day. And that's, that's not exactly what's taking place here. Jesus' parents first fulfill the law when they bring the child in for circumcision. Uh, that's obviously in verse 21. And it's instructed that any son of Abraham should be circumcised on the eighth day. The point is that they're instructed in the law, circumcision is to take place on the eighth day. And so we can see that. Genesis, I know y'all know this, but I just want to go through it again. Uh, <clears throat> Genesis 17, 11 to 12. This is where it first comes into be. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. But then Leviticus 12.3, the law is sort of laid out. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And we see that several times in Luke presented, obviously in 2.22, <clears throat> where uh, Jesus is, is circumcised, or 2.21, sorry, where Jesus is circumcised, but also in 159, where uh, John is John the Baptist is circumcised. So this is, the point is, they're coming to fulfill the law, the law being the child is circumcised on the eighth day. And I had this question, you know, that, that occurred to me while I was thinking through this, is like, I've always wondered why on the eighth day. And I think there's never really, it's never told exactly to us, but I, I think I know the reason why. So we're going to uncover that in just a second. Um, <clears throat> Jesus' parents also fulfill the law of purification, which is a, a, a different, adjacent law that's connected to, obviously, the circumcision of a child. But there is a purification law that is, that is also fulfilled here. And the law stated that the mother of a male child was unclean for seven days and then was to be confined for 33 days before journeying to the temple to offer sacrifice of a lamb and or a turtle dove, or two turtle doves. Uh, so there's provision for poverty and things like that. So if you look at 2.22, Luke 2.22, it says, <clears throat> and when the time came for their purification. So 2.21, the child is circumcised. Now there's some time, seven days of uh, purification, where Mary is effectively isolated after the birth. She's kind of put away. And then on the eighth day, she comes to the temple to circumcise the child, obviously. And then she's also then goes away for 33 more days. 
and <clears throat> then comes to present a sacrifice for purification. All right, so look at, uh, look at Leviticus 12, 2-4. <clears throat> Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So why do they circumcise on the eighth day? Because of this purity law after birth. So there's seven days of just like it would be during menstruation or anything like that. And then it says, then she, she shall continue for 33 days. So seven days, then go get the child circumcised. Then for 33 days, uh, in the blood of her purifying, she shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. So it seems like in 20, Luke 2.22, that's what she comes forward for is purification. So there's another trip that she makes to Jerusalem there on 40 days later. Um, <clears throat> now, this is hard to think through in a modern context, I think. Um, and, but I think part of the complication that we have with, with some of this is like not understanding or whatever is that we think of unclean as sinful or something, or uh, there's something wrong with you or, or whatever. And that's not, that's not true. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that someone is sinful. Um, it, it, it is a, is a, a worshiping practice. Let's say it that way. Um, so a woman doesn't have control over her, her body that time of the month, right? That's not, a, that's not something that she can control or, or say not to happen or whatever. And so it's not, there's not a fault being placed on the woman to say, you know, you're sinful. The, the law, the way the law is working is anything that is bloody represents a fallen world. Anything that's bloody. So a dead animal... Uh, that has blood. You could kill an animal, but there's, there's blood related to that. The blood is not to be consumed because the blood is life. The fact that the blood is outside the body and not inside the body is a, is a remembrance of the fall, right? Um, a dead body is the same way, a human dead body. There's pe there were morticians, people that had to take the dead bodies in and prepare them for burial, and they would be unclean, but they're not sinful, that's just the process of they've come in contact with the dead body. And so the same is true of this. There's obviously a lot of blood involved in, in birth and things like that. I don't need to educate you on those things. Um, but there is a, a time first to circumcise the child and then 33 days to go away and wait. And if you think about that, after that 40-day period, the person has to go to the temple where... The baby can be presented, is likely presented in Jerusalem here, but the baby can be presented to anybody that can do circumcision, any priest that can do circumcision. Whereas this sacrifice is done in Jerusalem. There's a journey that has to take place, and I don't know, I'm, I've never given birth, but I've been very close to someone who has, and I can only imagine if I was like, you know, hey, tomorrow we got to go, we got to make a trek down to Jerusalem you know, I know you had the baby yesterday, but, you know, what, or tomorrow we got to go, you know, get on the donkey. You know, I can imagine uh, that wouldn't be received well. And uh, so the point is, there's, there's a lot of healing process that takes place in 40 days and things, a lot of things like that, I'm sure, that, you know, go into consideration when it comes to stuff like that. So, um, <clears throat> so then 
40 days later, she goes for uh, purification. And then, it, and then it even says in Leviticus 12, 6, when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon, or a turtle dove, for a sin offering. And that sin offering is not because she has sinned, it's for any sin, uh, just because she's coming in to worship the Lord. Then in 12.8, it says, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves and t- or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So uh, that t- gives us a little bit of insight into Mary and Joseph, doesn't it? That they're bringing two turtle doves, which indicate that they're poor. That doesn't necessarily mean uh, as much, maybe, as some people want to make it mean... Uh, Someone bringing a lamb is probably comparatively rare to the population. Not many people, you know, are rich and able to afford that kind of thing. So um, they are at least at least middle class, if not below that. Um, okay, so they're coming in. So that was the second thing. So there's circumcision after uh, on the eighth day, and then uh, there's a purification ceremony that she's doing 40 days later. <clears throat> and then Jesus is dedicated then also at the temple, and his dedication is uh, tied to the law's instruction for presenting the firstborn. This is different than Mary's purification sacrifice. This is the dedication of a firstborn child. So that's another ceremony that's probably taking place at the same time as the 40-day purification, or somewhere around there. Um, according to the law's instruction, the firstborn is presented. If you look at Exodus thirteen twelve, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Um, so it belongs to the Lord. It's a, it's a, um, Jesus was the first one to open the womb, the first child, in other words. And so um, he is presented as being dedicated to the Lord, which, is, which brings us into the scene that we're going to see take place where um, there is a, a man uh, who, uh, Simeon, who takes Jesus and, and makes a proclamation about him. And then there's a woman named Anna or Hannah who is also going to make a, another proclamation. And this is likely because the firstborn is being presented um, in the temple and, or somewhere near the temple. And at least that's where they are. And so they're going to be found out there and uh, we're going to see a lot of things. But anyway... Uh, the point being, that's part of that ceremony. So, if you notice what's interesting, I think, about all of that is that there's several ceremonies that are taking place over the course of several days, and Luke just kind of squishes them all into, like, one little, you know, couple of sentences, and doesn't really tell you all the details of how all this worked out, but just sort of breezes right by it just to let you know all of these things took place. Well, what is his goal, then? If his goal is not to tell you how all the ceremonies took place, what is his purpose? His purpose is to show that, first of all, Mary and Joseph were pious and they followed the law. And second, this Jesus who is coming is brought up in accordance with the law, with following the law. Everything about him is being presented to fulfill all of the obedience that is required of the children of Israel. So what would happen if he wasn't circumcised? Or if he wasn't, um, you know, dedicated in the temple? Or his mother didn't care anything for the purity laws and just said, you know, forget that. I'm not doing that. Well, 
his representation of the nation of Israel as the Messiah would be called into question now because he didn't go through all the things that Israel is required to go through. How could he have then fulfilled all righteousness of all the things that are required of Israel if he didn't do that, right? So this is an incredibly important point, and Luke's point is the bigger picture, which is that's what he's fulfilling, rather than the individual micro details that likely you should already know, and if you're a Gentile, it doesn't really matter. So, you know, that, that kind of thing. Like, it, just, he's, it doesn't really matter to you. You know, this is the point. Um, you know, uh, however, <clears throat> the presentation of Jesus in the temple on the eighth day after his birth, has, there's this interesting little theme to it, and you can kind of see little glimpses of it. it. It echoes the presentation of Samuel. And if you're paying attention, there is a, there's a little part of this passage that we're going to read here in a second that typically, when you've probably read it a million times, and probably every time you've read it, you've, caught, you've gone, I don't, what? I don't understand that. It's sort of weird. But once you see a connection between uh, Jesus and Samuel, it, it starts to make maybe a little bit more sense. Uh, Samuel is brought or presented to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. That's what it said to us. When the child was young. And the phrase, to present him to the Lord, recalls a similar note uh, when Jesus in Samuel with the child who appeared in the presence of the Lord. So look at uh, 1 Samuel 22 to 24, 1, 22 to 24, and then Luke 2, 22. Um, so 1 Samuel 1, 22 to 24, But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, uh, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have him weaned. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up along with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flower, a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. And then you get some loose sort of parallels here. Uh, when the time came for a purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So there's this uh, kind of idea both kids are being presented to the Lord. That's not the strongest connection, I understand. You're probably going, ah, maybe, okay. Um, but if you look, if you keep looking here, it says um, Luke uses this phrase at the end where he gives a summary statement of Jesus' growth. And I'm sure you've probably read this. Uh, before, I want to look at it. It's Luke 2.40. It says, and the this is about Jesus, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Another translation says he grew in the favor of God and man, I think is maybe the way that King James puts it. Um, is that right? Was it wisdom and stature? Yeah, yeah. So there's this kind of summary statement, and, and a lot of people read that, and they're like, huh? What, what's, what's that about? And, you know, there's a lot of questions about Jesus and, you know, what he knew and what he didn't know and all that kind of stuff when he was a little kid. But uh, what's interesting is how that statement is really kind of similar to the way Samuel is presented at the temple. If you look in 1 Samuel 2, 26, 
Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Um, <clears throat> I think there's there, I think Luke is actually drawing more than just a, a similarity between um, Jesus and Samuel. I think he, he's actually uh, doing something intentional here. Uh, parallels with Samuel, if any do exist, uh, I think serve to draw attention to David. Samuel is coming along as one who is dedicated to the Lord, and remember, is a priest. He's being dedicated at the temple as a priest. He's being given to Eli as a priest. And what's, you know, kind of crazy about that whole scene is that God has been silent up to that point. And in fact, because of Eli and because of the sins of his sons, God has stopped speaking to him. They're on, they're on no speaking terms. And in the middle of the night, God calls this little boy, Samuel, in the temple and starts speaking to him. And the, the text in Samuel makes it very clear God changed to actually be speaking through Samuel now. He was communicating through Samuel. Samuel is a prophet. And, and not only is Samuel a prophet, but Samuel will be the kingmaker for David when God actually calls David to be king. Well, in this Jesus who's born, you actually have both prophet and king. God is going to speak through him because he is truly God in the flesh. But he is also the son of David. So he is going to be crowned king of the Jews by virtue of his death and resurrection. So he is fulfilling two roles that are both there in Samuel. And so I think, you know, when it comes to these connections, you may, you may read those and you may go, I see what he's doing. Yeah, that, that seems perfectly plain to me. Or you may go, ah, I don't know. The point is that I think Luke is giving a little kind of nod back to 1 Samuel. Anybody that's reading their Bible is going, He's, they said the same thing about Samuel. And it's causing your mind to be drawn back. Remember this story? Well, I'm about to show you something that's happening here with Jesus. The Bible does this all the time where some of the links will be really subtle and some of them will hit you in the face. You know, but, but one way or another, you're kind, of, you're kind of clued into some of these things when they use the same words, they use the repeated phrases and things like that. Okay? So whether you bite or not doesn't really matter to me as much, but uh, I think there is a, a little nod back to 1 Samuel there. Um, now, <clears throat> let's get to what actually happens with Simeon and with Hannah. Anna, Hannah. Simeon is presented uh, to us in the story as a simple man. Uh, seems to be a layman, not a priest. At least he's not, it's not told to us that he's a priest. He's in the location of a priest. He kind of acts like one, but it, he, he's never called one, it doesn't seem like. And so um, he dwells there in Jerusalem. And what is revealed about Simeon is neither his vocation nor his age, but his spiritual condition. He is, it's told to us that he is a devout believer in God, and this is the key, in whom the Holy Spirit dwelt, or the Holy Spirit was upon him, and to whom the Holy Spirit had spoken. So watch this in Luke 2, 25 to 35. 
Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So in just, I'm going to read the whole thing, but just look at the two references already so far. The Spirit was upon him, the Holy Spirit was upon him, and the Holy Spirit had spoken to him and revealed to them that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 27. And he came in the Spirit, third reference now to the Spirit in three verses, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I, I love that scene. That is one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture, is when Simeon does this. Because here's just a guy, and I don't know, maybe he was a priest, but he doesn't seem to be presented that way. He seems to just be a guy that's there. And the Spirit of the Lord is on him. He clearly gets some sort of message prior to this, hey, you're not going to die before you see the Lord's Christ. At the moment she brings him in, he knows somehow, I assume because the Holy Spirit is communicating to him there, this is the child. And <clears throat> the things that he speaks is not only profound, but uh, is, I don't know, is touching. And, and especially the way that he, you know, he's just a faithful guy who just is just being faithful to the Lord. That's, that's all he is. He's just there praying and all kinds of things. I, I just love that scene. But in this, he mentions that this child is coming forward as Israel's consolation. Uh, her, Israel's um, help, her uh, comfort, comforter. And uh, so it's a key word, and the reason that it jumps off the page is that this is actually a, a key theme in the Old Testament for re referring to the hope of deliverance for the nation. So I want to just go through some of these passages, and maybe you can hear, typically the word comfort is used, several others, compassion, uh, or comfort, uh, yeah, anyway. I think all these are comfort. <clears throat> Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, um, just pause real quick, because I didn't include this, but Isaiah 40. Th think of, I, li I like this way of thinking about the book of Isaiah. It's kind of easy to remember. The first 39 chapters, just like 39 books in the Old Testament, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah refer to a historical people, Israel, and Isaiah's prophecy to Israel and various other nations around Israel. The last 27 chapters, 
the 66 chapters in all, the last 27 chapters are about the Messiah coming. And so that is, I, I, don't, I don't believe in coincidence, but, you know, uh, I don't know if that's intentional. The Lord was like, you know, I'm trying to do this or not. Or that's just me making that up. But I don't know. It's an it's a easy device, a clever way of doing it. But the point is, when it transitions from 39 to 40, 40 introduces that hope of, because 39 closes with them going off into exile. You're going to go off into exile. You're going to be in Babylon. You know, this is going to happen. And he tells Hezekiah this and all this kind of stuff because of the things that you've done. Babylon's going to come in here and conquer this place. Well, then 40 is like, it's like sunset on 39 and it's dark and dreary and, you know, dim and like you're going off in exile. And then 40 verse 1 opens up with comfort, comfort, my people, right? So it's like the sun is, is rising and then, and then there's the next you know, 27 chapters are going to be all about the Messiah coming, the messenger, the, the helper, you know, that kind of thing. And so uh, here is, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. This is a, a message about, you know, the coming Messiah, and it's, he's considered a consolation, a comfort to people. Uh, Isaiah 49, 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 51, verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, he, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Isaiah 57, 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore, him, restore comfort to him and his mourners. Uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Uh, Jesus actually says that in the temple when he stands up and he reads the scroll from Isaiah. You know, he reads this passage and then he goes, uh, he sits down, he goes, he goes, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And sits down and everybody's like, what? You know, because they know this is a messianic, it's, it's about the Messiah coming so, um, the point is um, that rabbis even later uh, would begin to refer to the Messiah as manachem, meaning comforter, because they saw him as the one who would bring that consolation. And so when Simeon points to the consolation of Israel here in this child, that's what he's saying. He's, he's saying, this is the one, this is the the Messiah who's coming. So the, the, it's not just uh, the comforter of Israel or you know, something like that, just a kind of a blanket statement. This is like, oh, oh, this is him, right? This is a, this is a big pronouncement of somebody. Um, but what becomes clear by the end of Simeon's... But what becomes clear by the end of Simeon's blessing is that the person of Jesus Christ is God's salvation to all peoples. So he's presented as the comforter of you know, Israel, but in reality, he's the comforter of all peoples. Look at Luke 2.31. He says um, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, which of course, and sometimes it can be confusing because you can walk away going, what, does he mean uh, that everyone's going to be saved by this person? Um, well, it clearly means Jew and Gentile alike. Look at Luke 2.32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So he's, when he's saying for all people, 
um, certainly available to all. It's all nations are, have access to this same Messiah. He, in other words, there's not a Messiah for the Jews and then a Messiah for somebody else, for the rest of the Gentiles. It's, he's one for all. Um, all right. But, but finally, and this is where it gets a little bit contentious, is that Jesus is the one who is set for the falling and rising of many in Israel. This is another message in Simeon's uh, you know, his presentation here to the, the couple. Um, and when he says this, the, you understand this is sort of jarring, because he's just said for all peoples, but then he's, cl- he's clarifying, well, some, some are not going to be saved. In fact... This child is going to, some are going to be, some are going to rise, but this child is also going to cause many to fall. So it's going to be a both end. And this, this same idea that Simeon presents, you, you won't be surprised to, to know that it, it, it actually comes a lot from the book of Isaiah as well, where God is portrayed as setting up a stone of stumbling over which some will fall. Look at Isaiah 8, 14-15. And he will become a sanctuary. Remember this chapter 8 falls in the line of this, and unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, right? Uh, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Just terrifying. And then Isaiah 28, 13 to 16, um, is another image of this cornerstone and, and that's you know, going to disappoint some and, and bless those who put their trust in Him. So 28, 13 to 16. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Um, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid the, a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. <clears throat> so you see the message is there's, a, there's people who are treasuring sin. And he, and he says, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. We have an agreement. We, we, hey, we've got a deal here. We're God's people. We, the whip uh, will pass through us and not come upon us. It's going to be like the angel of death. It's going to pass over our house. For we've made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we've taken shelter. Uh, but he says that's not going to happen. No, this cornerstone is sure. It's a sure foundation. There's going to be some that fall on it, and it's precisely the ones who would rather harbor sin 
and take it in and hold on to it. But the ones who believe in him, put their trust in him, they will, it will be a moment of celebration. It won't, it won't crush them into a thousand pieces. He's going to be for their blessing. And this is also how the New Testament picks up on this idea of cornerstone. comes from the Old Testament, and they're picking up straight from that, and they're applying it to Jesus. Nine, Romans 9.33 is, It is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And Paul's talking about the Jews who are currently not believing. 1 Peter 2, 6-8, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected became, has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's terrifying. Um, so it, it goes on several references, but you can see that Simeon's words, when you read them, hopefully to you, you go, yeah, I love that, you know. But there's some, and you, you need to wrap your head around this, that Jesus is coming is bad news. And that's hard. And we don't know who that is. We don't know, we can't point to people and go, you know, well, that's clearly you, you know, or whatever. Uh, except to say, those that say, I hate Jesus and I don't believe, you know, they're clearly as, you know, well, hey, look, this is you. But still, the offer of salvation is there for you. You can repent and trust in Christ. Um, <clears throat> but Luke also includes the testimony of a pious woman named Anna, or uh, literally Hannah. In, I mean, even the Greek word is Hannah, but for some reason it's, it's put there in the English text as Anna, or Anna. Um, and she's there in Luke 2, 36-38, so let's read it. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming upon, uh, uh, up at that very hour, this is right after Simeon makes his statement, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she is, she's turned and she is, uh, is now is saying the same things that uh, Simeon was saying before. Now, unlike Simeon, who addresses the child's parents, Anna doesn't, doesn't give any indication that she really even acknowledges the presence of the parents as much. She just um, approaches the parents and turns and immediately gives thanksgiving to God for the revelation of this child that's here. Um, so, along with her praise, Anna addresses the crowd and she specifically hones in on uh, those who are waiting for the redemption of God's people. She says that they're at the end. To all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. So here's this woman who, is, who was married initially uh, from she, her first husband, who obviously died at some point seven years into their marriage, and then she never got remarried. And she just lived as a widow, and she spent all her time 
in the temple praying. How great is that? <laughs> Here's this just little faithful old lady that just keeps coming up to the church and just praying, you know, constantly. And uh, she's a prophetess. The, obviously, that, that, that tends to mean that the Holy Spirit is also working upon her. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to her in one way or another. And she comes in and she sees the baby Jesus. And she turns and, adri- and thanks God for, ha- for him being here. And then tells the rest of the people that are listening, hey, all you who are waiting, those who are anticipating the Messiah coming, he's here. Right? How great is that? That's awesome. A little scene, you know, of this little lady that's just, that's, that's there, uh, you know, waiting for the Messiah to come, uh, which I think is amazing. Uh, but she, she hones in on those who are specifically a group of people who are waiting on the redemption. And, and this, this kind of speaks to this theme that we've been seeing from the beginning of Scripture, really, even in the Old Testament, where there's constantly, continually, and especially in the prophets and in kings, there's, there's constantly referred to a group called the remnant, who are not ones that bow their knee to the idols, and not ones of Israel who... Uh, reject the Lord and, and various things. And Elijah has that moment, you remember in, uh, in 1 Kings, where he is, it's right after 17, somewhere around there, 18 or so, where he has just desecrated the prophets of Baal on the mountain of Mount Carmel, and, and, he, and he gets a message from the queen. And the queen, those are her prophets that he killed. And she's like, you know, God do so more to me if I, if I don't kill you by the end of this day. And so Elijah's like, oh, things just got real, you know. And he kind of, he takes off, and he's out there in the wilderness, and he's being ministered to by ravens and things like that. But, he's, but he is, uh, he's, you know, kind of lonely. Or it's sort of, and he sort of has this kind of moment where he is like, I'm the only one. I'm clearly the only righteous one in this country. And, uh, and the Lord says, no, I got many that have not bowed the knee to Baal. I will always keep for myself a remnant. And when she addresses the people who are waiting, that's who she's addressing. The people who are, it, it looks like all of Israel is just rejecting, you know, is rejecting God and all this, and, you know, bowing the knee to the Caesar and, you know, things like this. And, and that's not the case. There are many in the nation who are anticipating and, and there's a lot of hay that's made, and rightfully so, about people, Jews, that are standing around going, crucify him, right? But sometimes we look at the crowds that are saying that, and you're like, well, the, the crowd that, you know, they declared him king and said, Hosanna in the highest a week before and laid down their palm branches or a week later saying, crucify him. But that, I don't think that's the case. The people laying down their palm branches are the ones that are following him in Galilee, all around, everywhere he goes, and supporting his ministry and giving him money. And when they, when they crucify him, some of them flee and they run because they think they're next, but some of them are right there at the foot of the cross. And many of the ones who are supporting him are the women that are around him. Uh, basically, everybody's name is Mary, so you know, just <laughs> pretty much, if they're not named Mary, they're nicknamed Mary, and so it gets really confusing. But uh, his mother and Salome, which maybe is John's mom, and several other people, and John himself, were sitting there at the foot of the cross. And those are the people that were laying down the palm branches and saying, Hosanna in the highest. They know. And so you look at the rest of the New Testament, and you're like, well, all these people are running, all the Jews hated him, they all crucified him, they're trying to catch the disciples and trying to kill them too. 
wait a minute, just wait a minute. There's the remnant there who formed the first church in Jerusalem and who hear the preaching of Peter and they are cut to the heart and they say, men, what must we do to be saved? Right? And he says, repent and be baptized. Right? So there, there is a host of people who are waiting and she's speaking directly to them. The reality is that the public testimonies of these two saints, uh, both Simeon and Anna, or Anna, uh, highlight a crucial message concerning the coming of the Messiah. His ministry is going to reveal the state of the hearts of all people. Some who seem to be God-fearers will stumble over Him. These are people who are Jews, grew up Jews. They grew up reading the Old Testament. They go to synagogue every week. They go to the temple several times a year and participate in all the festivals and do all the things. They do all the things. They grew up in Sunday school. They do everything that is, seems to be what a good God-fearing Jew will do. And then all of a sudden the Messiah comes in and you would think, well, they're going to be the first ones to celebrate. But, but Herod is concerned in Matthew about this one who is born king of the Jews. And it says all of Israel along with him was concerned too. Well, why? Because many are going through the motions of religiosity but they're not actually Christians. They're not actually Jews. They're not actually real, true Jews who are anticipating the coming of the Messiah. So Jesus' coming is going to reveal the hearts of all. The pe- both the people who rejoice and the people who would rather have nothing to do with them. So this theme of this reversal, this rising and falling, it's also pivotal in Old Testament prophecies where God's salvation is salvation through judgment. So that judgment is precisely what we're talking about here. The people whose hearts are revealed to be in favor of the Messiah, that's a judgment. So right now, the judgment means that it's going to make things clear that were previously cloudy. So here's a, here are two people that are standing in front of you, and you don't really know anything about their hearts. You just know that they present themselves as God-fearing people. Judgment means that Jesus comes in and all of a sudden reveals the heart. And one is actually a true God-fearer, one who is waiting on the consolation of Israel, and the other is one who is just going through the motions of religiosity and wants nothing to do with the Lord. And Jesus' coming reveals the hearts of both. So it's a judgment on both people. But you see, for the one whose heart is revealed to be loving the Lord, it's a judgment in favor. It's a good judgment. So judgment's not always a bad word. But for the other, who, whose fate is now sealed because of his rejection of the Messiah, it's a, it's a judgment in the negative, right? So it's a judgment either way. Um, but I, we've obviously read Hannah's prayer. Hannah's prayer in, in 1 Samuel 2, 1-10, I think maybe... I'm coming to see that, and I, I wouldn't have really thought about this before doing a study through First and Second Samuel, but I'm coming to see is probably one of the more pivotal prayers or maybe statements in all of the Bible, really, as it leads into the Messiah. Because she's, she's demonstrating that the king, David, is coming. But her prophecy, her prayer there in First Samuel is actually anticipating the coming of the Messiah, who's going to do the same thing who's going to be the real one that is the fulfillment of that, of that prayer. But we've, we've read a lot of that. I want you to also hear Isaiah 6, 9-10, and listen to this. 
This is, you know, this is really concerning for many who read it. And he said, so he, remember this is in the context of Isaiah seeing God in the temple, and he says, uh, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And he says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Right after he's, after he's sanctified, after he's cleansed by the, the coal. And this is what the Lord commissions him to do. He says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. That's terrifying. Listen to what he says. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. That's what you're to do, Isaiah. When you go and teach, and you go and share prophecy, make the heart of the people dull. What? I thought I was supposed to help the hearts of the people. Make the heart of the people dull. Uh, he says, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. You hear that? Isaiah's prophecies to the nation of Israel who is rejecting the Lord, their heart, they present themselves as God-fearers. But in their heart, they're actually, they, they're rejecting God. And no one knows that but God. And he says, go to them. You're going to tell them the truth. And their hearts are going to become duller. Not sharper, duller. Their ears are going to become heavier. Their eyes are going to be unable to be open. Go and do that. I want it to be for their condemnation. And you think, that sounds excessively harsh. Well, when you flash forward into the New Testament, the apostles, the disciples come to Jesus and they go, hey, why do you talk in parables? Can't nobody understand you? Why don't, how many of you have thought this? Why don't you just say it plainly? Why don't you just tell us whatever it is? Listen to how Jesus responds. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Think about how sharp that is. Well, Jesus came to seek and to save. So his parables are meant to draw everybody in and say, hey, come and repent. No. No, he's coming for judgment. He's bringing some. And they're hearing the parables. And they're going, I know what he means. I understand that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see that. I want to follow this guy. This guy is the Messiah. This guy has truth. And then other people are going, crucify him. Why? Because his teaching is designed so that the people who are his will hear and believe and receive and respond the way that God wants them to in repentance and faith. And those whose hearts have grown dull, those whose hearts are darkened, who want desperately to hold on to sin, will turn and crucify him and reject him to the grave. So Jesus is coming for judgment, for hope, and for good, and for blessing, but also for cursing. The fate is sealed through this one 
man. Questions? Either is that clear or that confusing? I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead, James. Um, he does, he does know, but why does he know? This is, this is the uncomfortable part. I'm just going to say this, okay? So, just, I'm going to rip the band-aid off, so, why does he know? He knows because he chose. Listen, once you see it in Scripture, you'll see it everywhere. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The Bible is, the Bible will, yes, say God is sovereign and he is omniscient and he all, he's all-knowing. So he does know what your response is going to be to any and every circumstance. There's no question about that. But the Bible is not going to let you sit there. It's going to push you further and say, you did not choose me, I chose you. And this is where it gets really uncomfortable when, he said, when, Je- when Jesus says, look, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can unless the Father draws him. So, I get it. We're... Americans, and we have freedoms and all these kinds of things. But the Bible does not present salvation as a choice. Do you, have to, do you have to believe? Do you have to profess faith? Do you have to say, I believe? Yes. No question about that. Does the gospel need to be presented to you? Yes. Is the gospel to be presented available to all? Yes. Is there a broad net of salvation to be cast amongst everybody and say, Anybody who will believe can come to Jesus and be saved absolutely, 100%, unequivocally, yes. But who gets up? Who's the one that says, I believe? The ones he chose. And the Bible is adamant about that. There's no question about it. How do I understand that person who stood up and said, I believe that. That, that parable you just read, that makes total sense to me. It's like it's reading my mail. Well, how did that happen? How did that happen for that guy, but the guy next to him who's doing the same things, it goes over his head like, like a balloon. How does that happen? The Bible tells you. I chose him for the foundation of the world and brought him to the moment of salvation through the presentation of the gospel. And once you see that in Scripture, you can't unsee it. It is on every single page. 
And it's reiterating that to you over and over again. So does he know? He absolutely knows. Why does he know? Because he chose. Why is it that he can say, my parables are designed for you to not see and for some to not hear? Why? Shouldn't you want? Not the sovereign Lord of the universe. He can teach exactly to the people that he's calling. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. But it's true. It's on every page. Leave it there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your word. And I'm grateful that we can embrace it. Even when it's challenging and difficult and even when some parts are uncomfortable. But I'm glad that we have it. That we can see clearly what it says and and we can believe it. And we can trust it. And I know that your word gets tied up into a lot of theological discussions and a lot of labels put on it and things like that. And all kinds of debate that will always be had in churches, and I get all that. And on this side of the grave, or on this side of the, resur- the resurrection, or this side of the second coming of Christ is probably always going to be with us. But we have your word before us that we can dwell on, we can meditate on. And so my prayer really is that for all of us who, are, who struggle to embrace fullness of your grace in Christ, that you would simply open our eyes to just see the words printed on the page and all of those uncomfortable truths that are hard that we would embrace and come to cherish and love and celebrate and see the beauty of the doctrine of salvation and what you've done for us in Christ. What, a, what truly remarkable work you have done by grace that you took those who were dead in their trespasses and sins and made us alive together with Christ and raised us to your right hand. We're grateful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.